Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and the effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Fred Hayes will join us to discuss Never Panic Early. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, career in space exploration has accomplished one Mr. Fred Hayes, the backup lunar module pilot for Apollo 8 and Apollo 11 for serving as the lunar module pilot for the Apollo 13 mission. He worked with NASA for nine years after Apollo 13, serving on the backup crew for Apollo 16 and commanding free flight test missions for the space shuttle program. He's been his new biography, Never Panic Early, an Apollo 13 astronaut's journey. And Mr. Hayes, we're so pleased to have you today on the Grok Science Show. Uh, thank you. Happy, happy to join you. Well, this is a fantastic accounting of your life, the insights into the space program, and you grew up in Biloxi, and I'm curious how that shaped your outlook and eventually going into the space program. Well, Biloxi was a small town, about 14,000 population during my time growing up, and I think I had parents that raised me with good attitude, a safe community. I could ride my bike or run around town when I was younger before I even had a bike, go around town without any fear. So it was that kind of quiet uh, town. Schoolyards were our playgrounds, so we stayed after school and used them. And I had enhanced in me a work ethic, felt I had to uh, earn earn my way, and that's captured in the book. World War II came along, those towns became very large with the opening of air bases at Kiesler Air Base at Gulf Biloxi and uh, Gulfport. Also had an air Army Air Corps station to over 100,000 airmen, now populated the coast area there. So I uh, quickly took advantage of that, had my dad build me a little box to put some uh, polish in and brushes and rags, and I went to polish and shoes at about eight years old. And I tried to give a flavor of the, how the economics was in those days because I said I charged a nickel, which I did, and pointed out that a nickel got you five of these small Tootsie Rolls, RC Cola drink, or a very small uh, Hershey bar. And so you know, I tried to point out that life was simple and economics and cost of things was considerably distant to what we have today. It's changed dramatically. Uh, primarily, uh, the tourist business has grown, which it wasn't large then. There were only about three major hotels that sponsored conventions and that sort of thing, plus a lot of tourists during the summer. And sprung up as casinos all the way along the coast, Baton, uh, from Bay St. Louis to uh, Biloxi. There are quite a number of casinos, obviously brought in a lot of outside traffic and, and people and a large workforce that's hired, obviously, increased that part of it. So that's been a, a major component now of the economy for the Mississippi Gulf Coast that wasn't, wasn't there before. Then undergoing naval aviator training and, and serving as a U.S. Marine Corps fire pilot. How did that all come about? Well, that, that was by a sort of an accidental uh, transition in my career path. I had intended, because of my interest in high school, uh, working on high school newspapers, a sports editor, and then working summers for the Lokes Bloxy Gulfport Daily Herald newspaper, 
I got interested in journalism, went into two years of the uh, first two years of college, uh, majoring in thinking. I was majoring in journalism. And again, on newspaper for the school, I was sports editor the one year and editor the next. This was a junior college, which today are called community colleges. And trying to continue that career when the Korean War erupted. And that's what steered me into the uh, military to serve my country. And the only uh, program I could get into at 18 with two years of college that led to a commission as an officer was the Naval Aviation Cadet Program. My dad had always encouraged me to get a, get into a program that would lead to being an officer in the service. So I enrolled in the first time I flew, and I'd never been in an airplane before in my life, not even sitting on the ground. First time I flew, it was incredible looking at the ground from above. And I decided then that somehow I wasn't sure what it was going to be. Uh, my career was going to change to being involved in aviation. So it just went from there to uh, the trail I then followed, led to being eventually a test pilot after serving the two uh, Marine Corps squadron, fighter pilot squadrons, then a test pilot and for NASA, and then on into the uh, space program. How are you selected as the NASA astronaut at that time? Was there quite a bit of competition for the program? At that time, when I applied, we were in the fourth group of pilots, fifth group overall, because a small science group had been chosen in between the third and fourth pilot group. And the selection at the time was somewhat follows today. Uh, we applied, of course, and had to have list of references and that kind of thing in a written filing. And NASA the, chose the ones out of that first filing that roughly had certain criteria of your weight and your size and uh, you could fit in the capsule and your flight experience and that sort of thing that uh, might, would be good to have, uh, including test piloting experience. From there, my case of my selection, I think that was about who applied initially, may have been several thousand, but it was whittled down to about 500 and something pretty quick based on that. some of those criteria. Many were eliminated. And then of the 500 and something that survived, you went then into a week-long physical uh, with the Air Force Medical Facility at San Antonio. And then you went through a series of uh, meetings at uh, near what was then Manned Spacecraft Center, now Johnson and a hotel with some, some written essay type stuff and appearance before a board questioned about some technical information and I think primarily to see how you came across on your feet. It might then be in the, with the general public and your uh, demeanor for uh, becoming an astronaut, which required, of course, a lot of public events and public appearances. Well, how was the environment like for all the individuals going through the very early and formative stage of the space program? Well, you know, when you join, you're a part of the, that selection group, which was nicknamed, in our case, the original 19, because there were 19 of us chosen. And we went through sort of a planned training curriculum that NASA had laid out for when you entered the program. So we didn't immediately go on to missions. We had some, uh, some classroom. We visited plants where the spacecraft were being built. We visited the NASA centers that were going to be involved, in, in our case, in the Apollo program. When we came aboard, uh, Jim and I was more than halfway through. And so we were clearly going to, if we participated in missions, it was going to be in the Apollo program. And had geology field trips quite a number during that period, which was supposed to be about a year. But it really, I got uh, pulled off, as many did, just for special assignments under a support crew, needs for missions that had become real. And the prime crew and backup crews of those missions were very busy in training. 
so to handle some things, they they needed support people. And so some of us were assigned in that role, which I was initially to uh, what turned out to be the first mission that would fly in Earth orbit with a lunar module. Jim McDivitt was the primary commander. And with his instructions, Ed Mitchell, who was also assigned at the time, we spent the next year at Grumman Corporation in New York following the final manufacturing and testing of the lunar modules. So uh, we were up there uh, essentially day and night. Occasionally, we get to cycle back home for a weekend during that uh, year in 1967. That fateful flight, Apollo 13, there was some shuffling around with the crews for the flight you were on there. Right. Well, the support crew on what was then then Apollo 8 and Apollo 9 to follow was going to fly, plan to fly another Earth orbital mission with a lunar module. They would have two of those uh, missions in the, in the normal plan. But then the lunar module schedule kept slipping, it had delays in getting delivered to Kennedy uh, where it would get ready for launch. So it was a, a fairly dramatic shuffle of NASA management, mainly with George Lowe's uh, urging on the assumption that Apollo 7, the first time the command module flew, was successful. And through all the test trials they put it through in Earth orbit, then Apollo 9 would go to the moon with just the command module. And, and with that result of that mission change, Apollo 9 actually then became Apollo 8, and Apollo 8 became Apollo 9 because Jim McDivitt decided to stay with the limb because he'd had so much time and experience getting ready for that first lunar module flight in Earth orbit. And I got assigned to that crew because of the circumstance of uh, Mike Collins having a medical problem and got moved off the prime crew. Jim Lowell, my later commander, moved up to the prime crew of Apollo 8, and I was moved into that slot and as a backup crew. So my first crew assignment was for Apollo 8, the mission that went to the moon, backed up Bill Anders. And following that, I shuffled again to as a backup crew to Apollo 11, backing up Buzz Aldrin, because Mike Collins by then had overcome his medical problem. And Mike was in the group ahead of me and had seniority, so uh, and it got bumped from the prime crew before. So he got to fly to the moon the first time on Apollo 11, and I was the backup to Buzz. Well, then we were aligned, because normally you cycle three flights, three missions. So, you know, if you flew eight, you'd be back up on 11 and then fly 14, which is what we thought we were going to do. Jim Lovell, commander, and myself as one module pilot, and Ken Manningly as the command module pilot. But then circumstances there were with, was, was going to fly 13, Al Shepard, Stu Rusa, and Ed Mitchell. Both Ed and Stu had never trained for a flight before, so a, a lunar flight. Ed had. He was the backup on 10. So they wanted to give them more training time. And as a result, they asked Jim if he'd mind moving a mission ahead. And he, of course, said yes. The sooner you fly, the better. So we ended up not flying 14, but flying 13. So there you were on 13, and uh, probably a lot of people have seen at least parts of this or have seen it dramatized. I wonder if you can explain your experience of how you felt when these problems started to arrive and working through the issues that arose on that flight. Well, the, the problem that arose, this big bang uh, that we heard and felt the reverberations and some motion of the uh, spacecraft that were, in this case, the command module and lunar module were mated together. We did not know exactly what had happened. In fact, truthfully, the real causal effects and what happened weren't found until after we spliced down. Uh, with looking at a lot of data from Kennedy uh, spacecraft testing and getting ready for launch of the vehicle, that sort of thing. But we knew initially when I got back into my normal position in the uh, command module 
in the right couch and looked at the instrument panel, it was obvious we had lost tank two of the oxygen system. We had two tanks. Tank one appeared to be fully intact. It took some time for the slow leak that for some reason we never really ever understood developed and showed itself on some of the instrumentation and meters we were looking at. It was not life-threatening. If uh, that tank had not leaked, we would have just stayed fully powered up. And but, uh, but the thing I didn't know, without reference in mission rules, was that loss of one oxygen tank meant an abort. And I knew we would not even go in the lunar orbit, much less land on the moon. So I was just sick to my stomach with disappointment. Because I'd done all that work, training through two previous missions to go do everything, uh, to get ready to go fly, and then got to watch somebody else go fly. And here was my big day, and uh, it was gone in an instant. How we get home, we'd been just normal, fully powered up, and we'd had a full serviceable command module, and it had been a fairly routine but boring, disappointing trip back home. It took some time, see, for that tank to show it, it was leaking. So it, it was it was not, people don't understand it, but it was not one of these heart-in-the-throat kind of events of uh, your car out of control. So it slowly evolved into that uh, dire situation because we wrestled for a while to try to stop the leak. It wasn't immediately apparent that we couldn't do that. And so I'm talking about an hour or more going by before we kind of, mainly people on the ground, Mission Control had run out of ideas on what valves to uh, shut or whatever to see if they could isolate the leak before that became apparent. And that over time, we would eventually lose the command module. Uh, we couldn't keep it powered up because without oxygen, you couldn't run the fuel cells, which is the primary power source. And you couldn't keep running because the three batteries were very small and meant to support entry if you should get back to Earth. So they, we had to shut down the mothership, which was, I didn't, but Jack Laus, uh, Swiger did, which was never uh, intended to ever be done. While Jim and I uh, powered up the lunar module to support uh, life support, provide communication and all the system support we needed during the ensuing uh, four days. You stayed in the astronaut rotation and continued on and served as backup for Apollo 16, and then you were slated for Apollo 19, but that never came to be. Uh, that That's correct. Uh, we got back, and uh, about a month afterwards, uh, Deke gave me another assignment as the backup commander to John Young on Apollo 16, and the crew assigned was Bill Pogue, command module pilot, and Jerry Carr, lunar module pilot. So Jerry and I, two two Marines. Jerry was active duty Marine, and I'm a, I was a, obviously a headband Marine Corps. We were going to land on the moon, so I thought that was great, this, this, all, in, all from the original 19 group. But then about four to four months after uh, we were signed and started thinking about planning, really supporting the Apollo 16 launch in flight, NASA canceled 18 and 19. So that opportunity I knew was probably gone. And Deke actually uh, cycled Jerry and Bill to the Skylab program to fly that last mission because he knew we only had limited seats left to fly and they had not had a flight. So he wanted to give them a chance. So they left me and I inherited Stu Russo and Ed Mitchell, who had just come back off flying the Apollo 14 mission. And we completed a, what you call a deadhead backup crew assignment on 16. And, of course, the hope I had to go back to the moon was gone. You stayed with NASA for some time after that, and you also uh, worked uh, with the space shuttle program as well with approach and landing tests. That's correct. The shuttle actually uh, vehicle fit more, particularly the orbiter part of it, 
more with the uh, work I had been a part of at Edwards, where we had at NASA Flight Research Center as a NASA test pilot, which I was for seven and a half years before joining the astronaut program. You know, we'd done experimental airplane tests before my time there, all the X-series, and then, of course, the X-15 program was underway while I was at Edwards. So the shuttle was more akin to the experience and what I'd seen, at least, and been involved in, in uh, not flying. I didn't fly the X-15, but in supporting the missions was more akin to that than a capsule. Also, we get a little bit in the program management experience. So I briefly, for four years, left the astronaut office and went to the orbiter project office, working for Aaron Cohen, who was the leader at that time, to be involved throughout the early, not just the uh, testing, but the early design development of the space shuttle system, and particularly the orbiter, and then following through on the uh, testing of the vehicle to get it ready for flight. When I was named to one of the two crews that were going to get to fly Enterprise, the very first orbiter we built. So that was kind of a womb to tomb experience for me to be uh, from day one when the proposals came in, evaluating those proposals from four companies to decide who we would pick to build a space shuttle system, and then be in the program management office and roll through the uh, design development of the vehicle, then move back to the astronaut office to be one of the two crews to fly the very first orbiter. Curious what your perspective is on NASA today, or spaceflight did certainly change quite a bit, and now we have private enterprise in the mix. What do you make of all this? What do you think about the future of where spaceflight is heading? I think NASA has done a, a great job with the funding available to continue the world of exploration with the things that have sent to Mars, robots that have been very productive, one still operating, and even a little helicopter still flying occasionally there on Mars. Uh, Earth orbit assets, satellites with space telescope, which has had an incredible career, and the new AXAF or whatever that just went up that can look and see even further than space telescope out in the universe been up, is up and is operating now. And other, other satellites that have done the more uh, reconnaissance, if you will, collecting data that's been applicable in understanding the earth warming and that sort of thing, collecting data. And things uh, we even sent, and the European Space Agency has, and I think China even has had one that's visited uh, asteroids and comets and uh, meteors, and we even have one that's bringing back a sample we took from one. So that part of the world has, I think, continued on and done well with the funds available beyond the International Space Station, which has been had people in it since, I guess, 2000 now. It's been constantly manned for 20, going on 22 years. It's been operation uh, with more for an experimental laboratory on orbit. Beyond that is, uh, of course, the new mission named Artemis that's going back to the moon, to land on the moon. Uh, and I think the planned site is near the South Pole, where reconnaissance there and satellite reconnaissance has said that that's probably ice which would be a nice thing to have, which has obviously uh, ice is a mix of hydrogen and oxygen, which can be used for not just life support, but make propellant for things that may eventually, if you had a moon base, you would assemble and launch from there. So that's the kind of prospectus. And of course, the longer range hope is to get people on Mars and maybe use this uh, initial impetus, Artemis, put people on the moon and then maybe grow into a moon base to go from there to uh, missions that would go to Mars with people. If you have advice for people, if they're interested in space and the space program, any advice from all your years of experience that you could give them? Well, from my standpoint of my career, uh, which has been 88 years old, 
and I can only uh, feel and tell people I'm I'm blessed, no question about it, and very happy with the, the opportunities I've had. And experiences I've had, which have been rewarding, have been at times exciting, and I got no complaints about the life I've had. As to advice I give, obviously for people who are so inclined, and that and that's a, a key uh, thing about uh, when I talk to children, particularly up through high school, is to try to capture what the talent you have, the talent you've been blessed with when you're born, and how to best figure out how to apply that talent into a profession. And it may not be the space program, which normally is uh, at least the active players design, developing, flying spacecraft uh, or airplanes, for that matter, are going to be more technically oriented people. So if you if you don't like arithmetic, you probably don't want to, that as any of that those as a, a career. Although NASA overall employs all sorts of careers, you know, clerical, financial, you you name it. So it's not just uh, the technical people, but try to make the best of the talent you have in the direction, and that will enhance and make it easier with whatever hills you have to climb and uh, to get the resume to qualify. Uh, college education or technical training that will make it seem easier and enjoyable. And of course, when you go to work in that kind of career with uh, where you have that skill, you will enjoy it a lot more. It'll be a, a lot more fun and going to work every day. Well, we were just talking with Mr. Fred Hayes. He has penned the new book, Never Panic Early, an Apollo 13 astronaut's journey. Mr. Hayes, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. Very glad to join you. Good to replay some of that past. Right, thank you. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.